Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. I want to add my voice of welcome to you also uh, at Northridge, whether you're in this room today or you're online watching us and through Facebook or through our streaming platform on our iCampus, or even if you're streaming this maybe five months after the, the showing here, after, after we're actually doing this live, we are so glad you are connected and joining us in this, in this season, in this experience as we're in week two of Stay Positive. You know, we, uh, we saw early on, we experienced this in March, that, that we were told and we... We, we're living this out that we're in a pandemic. We're in a pandemic of illness, of disease. And then shortly, you know, just a few months, a month or so into it, then we start experiencing all the cultural stuff bubbling up. And we're told also that the, 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 the phrase that was going all across the world, all across our culture, certainly was not only are we in a pandemic of, of uh, disease, but we're also in a pandemic of of. Uh, of injustice and hatred and uh, racism and and those things clearly are are uh, shaping us and and we're dealing with those things but i would argue as well we're not just in a, a pandemic of injustice we're not just in a pandemic of disease but because of those things in the world around us we're in a pandemic of complaining I mean, you know, we see how the world is manifesting itself. It's just a natural course for all of us to veer into is into this negative mindset in this this season where the not just the glass is half empty, but the glass is half empty. And I'm going to be more vocal about it with everyone around me than I normally am. And you find your heart just shifting, not subtly, but making these seismic shifts to where we complain. And that comes about as a result of something I've identified and I'm convinced that, that we have to take note of is the three big giants that we are fighting in our culture. Three big giants that each and every person in this room, each and every person streaming with us today is fighting is, is that we battle with fear, we battle with ungodly anger, and in this world we're battling with hopelessness. You know, when I talk to church folks, when I talk to people that God just has come across my way, we have a conversation long enough, more often than not, we'll hear just these tones of fear coming into people's lives. They're just sharing this fear, and sometimes it's justifiable, and you're like, yeah, I'm there too. I'm, I'm right with you. I'm feeling the same things. Sometimes it, it, it goes to an extreme where the fear is almost like, Wow, so what's the solution here? You gotta, you're going to have to live in a bubble the rest of your life, away from everybody. And, 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 and that's not a real option, you know? Uh, and I, I experience, I use the word ungodly anger because we know that, you know, Jesus was angry at times. And when we see things that's happening, sometimes when, when I see how the enemy is at work in someone's heart, it makes me righteously angry, right? But let, let me tell you, righteous anger is very different than ungodly anger. And we see not a lot of righteous anger abounding in our culture, in our world today, but I do see, as I see visions of, of, of stores and buildings burning, I see a lot of ungodly anger. When I hear of 
of cases skyrocketing of families uh, dealing with, with abuse in the homes, whether it's between spouse, spouses or with children. I see an incredible rise of ungodly anger. I, I see an incredible rise of ungodly anger when I talk to friends or talk to individuals who talk about how they just can't connect with their best friend anymore because of differences on to mask or not to mask, right? And it, those, those little things cause these deep wedges to divide and deep, what, what I would consider strong friendships that have lasted years and years and years, but there's a, a, a profound amount of ungodly anger in our culture, in our world, and in, in Christians' lives. And I see hopelessness when I'm looking into someone's eyes and they just can't see that there's going to be an exit. There's going to ever be a time when life is better or they're in a better spot and they're just hopeless. And when someone is going through those things, it's just natural that what comes out of your mouth is just not just anger, but complaining. Complain. The glass is half empty. Things are never good enough. The, there's always something around you that you're disappointed in. And you're going to have to make sure not only you take note of it, but every person around you, every person that's attached to you through social media will note, of the, will note your complaint. And be able to mark down that you are discouraged and you are disappointed and, and, and your, your, your name is on that tower. I have good news for you today. That way of living is a choice. It's a choice. And you can choose something different. You can choose something better. We see that from Solomon as he writes out of his book of Proverbs. I say this every time we go to Proverbs and we read something. Pro I love Proverbs. It is so practical, uh, a practice, an old practices. People encourage to read a book of a chapter a day for a month. And you can read a chapter of, of, of Proverbs every day of the month and just repeat it. I've never done that, but I have taken different months out of the year in my pilgrimage and said, this is going to be a wisdom month. And I would read uh, a chapter a uh, day along with my quiet time. And there's just so much practical stuff here. And in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13, Solomon sets out a very clear choice we have. Follow along with me. He says, a happy heart makes the face cheerful. But what? Heartache. Heartache does what? Heartache crushes the spirit. You see, you have a choice here. You can have a heart that's happy, and when it's happy, it's going to make your face cheerful. What is that? What is he trying to say? He's trying to say, when your heart is happy, the people around you will see the difference. They will see that you are cheerful. You won't have to tell them, oh, by the way, I'm really happy. They'll see it. They'll see it in how they experience you. Uh, when they hear the words coming from your mouth, the, the demeanor you're taking, the type of posts you're putting online, if you're a big Facebook or social media person, will, will show, hey, I'm a happy, cheerful person. Or what? You can choose to be happy and to be cheerful and have a happy heart. You can choose to have a sad heart as well. You can choose to allow your heart to be broken, to allow that to continue to fester inside you. And guess what? What, that, what does that do? That crushes your spirit. That destroys you, Solomon is saying. So, you know, I understand that in this age as we read this passage, uh, for me personally, I want the first option. I want the former choice. 
But I also understand that we can't just say, so, choose happiness, everyone. You know, if, that was, if it was as easy as that, then my job would be done, wouldn't it? I could look at you in the eye and say, choose happiness. It will, it will benefit you. It will benefit your family. It will benefit your coworkers. It will benefit your friends. Go choose that. Go choose that. Now go. Go and be married, right? If, if it's as simple as that, we could stop right now. But I understand that it is harder and more difficult. So we need to look at how, how can we choose to have a happy heart in the face of, of all the negativity, in the face of the circumstances that we live in today. One of the, the big choices we do here is to figure out one of the big things I'll just say up front is, is listen to what's coming out of your mouth, you know? Uh, do you find yourself complaining? Do you find yourself criticizing? Do you find yourself being critical of the world around you, the people around you? Uh, that will drive you to heartache, which does what? Crushes your spirit. Uh, but you know, that's a practical thing. But on a bigger question, how do we, how do we lean in to having a happy heart? For that, I would turn to and, and look at a prophet in the Old Testament named Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Now, here by a show of hands, those of you who are seasoned Christians, how many people have sat in on a good, profound lesson from Habakkuk lately? Anybody? Anybody? I don't know when's the last time if I've ever done a sermon out of the book of Habakkuk, but by golly, we're going to do that now. And so I invite you to make your way, if you have a copy of scriptures, to go to Habakkuk. If you're one of those people, then this is not a good time for those who are you version people, right? Because all you have to do is you just know Habakkuk starts with an H, and you find Habakkuk on your order, and you just push that button, and there you're in Habakkuk. For those of you who have old school copies, you got to figure out where is Habakkuk. It's on for me. It's on page 836 of my copy of the Scriptures. Habakkuk. Many of us are like, okay, now who is this guy, and and what what who, what is he? Habakkuk was a, a, a um, prophet, lived in the 600s, uh, 600 B.C., uh, before Christ in, in Jerusalem. He lived this at this point. The nation of Israel had, had disintegrated and split into two tribes, two nations, Israel and Judah. Judah was considered, uh, according to the scriptures, the faithful group. They would have some good leaders, some bad leaders. They got to a point of apostasy, though, in the 600s. And in the 600s, this is a time of economic upheaval in Israel and in Judah. This was a time when there was already a word coming that a giant nation named Babylon was forming, was raising an army, and they were crushing all of the tribes and all of the nations that they were that, that came before them. And, and there was... There was signs that Babylon was headed towards Jerusalem. And so they didn't know when, but at some point they were going to have to face a mighty enemy. There were uh, economic, uh, all sorts of economic problems at this time. There were famines. There were, there were long droughts that would just cause incredible uh, economic uncertainty, uh, food uh, uncertainty. There was, uh, it was a very unstable, unstable time. At this time of history, and uh, and what was even more disconcerting was there wasn't a clear message from God. 
At this time, there was no one prophet. Oh, you know, yeah, we had Habakkuk. We had Jeremiah. But here's the thing. We also have some uh, 2,000 years of history, 2,600 years of history that we can look back and go, wow, they were dead on. But in the day when they were saying, thus saith the Lord, there were just as many prophets, if not more, on the other side, giving messages that were opposite of what Habakkuk was saying and what Jeremiah was saying. And matter of fact, most of the people that they did not believe that Jeremiah spoke for the Lord to the point that he was in prison and jailed. Habakkuk was not being listened to. And so there wasn't this clear message of God uh, that was going around. So it was so disconcerting. And in the midst of this, Habakkuk writes... And he writes about a choice he makes. And we, I believe, can just learn so much from him. In verse 17, he says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. What, what's that, Adam? What's, what's Habakkuk describing? He's saying, hey, you know what? There's no food out there in the fields. I have no wealth. There's no, there's no possibility right now for us to get rich. There's no possibility right now for us to feed and to eat as normal. Even though all of these things are happening, he says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He makes a choice, doesn't he? I have a choice to rejoice or I have a choice to mourn. And I am choosing to rejoice. Not in what? Not in my circumstances. Not in my power. I'm having a choice to rejoice. Not in the fact that I have a life of ease or that I can see a way out. But I choose to rejoice in the Lord, Habakkuk says. And then he goes on. He, he shows his other choices. I will be what? I will be joyful in God my Savior. Right? So, again, Habakkuk has a choice. I could be discouraged, and I could be sad, and I could be downcast, or I could choose joy for myself. And he goes on in verse 19, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He's saying, hey, I'm in a secure place in life. Even though economically I have nothing, even though I don't have food, even though we don't know how we're going to survive tomorrow, my feet are like deer. They're sure-footed on the heights, and I choose to rejoice in the Lord. He had a choice, and he chose God. Now, how was it that Habakkuk did this, I ask? Again, because I don't believe that Habakkuk was just mentally superior to the rest of his culture. I don't believe he was morally superior. I don't believe Habakkuk was a better person than the people around him. I don't believe Habakkuk understood a mantra or had some kind of spiritual discipline that he was doing that no one else was doing. He didn't understand anything differently. And yet he was choosing to rejoice. He was choosing, going back to Proverbs 15, to have that glad heart rather than the despondent heart. Why? How could he do this? Quite simply, I would make the argument that Habakkuk was able to choose these things because he was looking more to his God than to his surroundings. He was looking more to God, and God was more real in his life than the terrible things happening in his life at that point. Now again, 
it would be easy for you to respond to me and say, Tony, that's a great bumper sticker, you know, that, that he looks to, to look to God and all of your things more than your surroundings. Great bumper sticker. And like John was confessing and sharing with us earlier, one thing to preach it up here, but then on Wednesday, when all the stuff hits the fan, it's easy to then go down and just allow yourself to focus on the negativity and be a complainer and be a person that is caught up in those things. Yeah, Tony, that's a great bumper sticker, but how do you actually live that out? And it'd be easy for you to walk away and say, you know what, okay, if you're going to be a person, Tony, where you take a vow of poverty and you go and live in the mountains and just think and dwell on God all your days, yeah, you could be that kind of person to say that God is more important and God is bigger than you, uh, than your surroundings. Yeah, you can do that, but you don't understand, Tony. I, I, have, I have a life and I have a job and I have a family to maintain and I have bills that come into my home every day. I, for me, I can't look at God more than I look at my surroundings. So that's a great platitude, Tony, but it means nothing in this world. And to you, I say, bull. Bull. The reality is, is you and I, I don't care if you have the IQ of a snail, you have the ability to focus on something, right? And you go, I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that, Tony. Well, you know, I was thinking about this and about something that happened in my life when I was five years old. And I'm like, this is it. This shows that we have, even a five-year-old, can focus on something specific, despite their surroundings. So, for those of you who are younger, do, the older folks here remember this. Remember when Halloween was a holiday that every family just had to get through, right? You just got through it. It wasn't, you know, there were no corporate sponsored events. There were no large organizations that had Halloween celebrations or fall things. Churches did not have uh, trunk or treats. They did not have safe places for kids to go get candy. For most of us, Halloween in that era, and I'm specifically talking about in the 70s and 80s, Halloween was that time where you drug your parents to Kmart and you got that vinyl costume, right, with that plastic mask that had the little bitty slits that made it just perfect for you to walk in the middle of oncoming traffic because you had no way of seeing anything. And you really thought, as a kid, you really thought, I'm a stormtrooper, right? You remember that? It wasn't three-dimensional costumes that had muscles built into them like Dax gets to experience now. You know, it wasn't anything like that. And like I said also, there were no, you know, there were no pumpkin days. There were no there were no events where you go to, you know, go to towns around and go to the, the little local quaint haunted houses or anything like that. But what we had in St. Louis was we understood that there was, if you went to Six Flags the weekend before Halloween, you were going to have a Halloween experience. Now, keep in mind, in the, in the 70s, it wasn't like, you know, oh, look at those cute pumpkins. And look at, oh, there's, a st there's stalks of hay over here. And, oh, look, there's Indian corn hung up over here. Oh, no, no. In St. Louis, at Six Flags, it looked like a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old boys decorated the place. So it meant everywhere you saw was just gruesome things, you know? I remember seeing, like, you know, plastic hands hanging, you know, decapitated and severed body limbs hanging all over the place. And as a five-year-old, that was kind of troubling, okay? Kind of traumatic for me. Well, one of the things that we would do, and, and those of you who are old enough, you remember the Haunted Mansion at Six Flags? Anybody remember that? Show of hands, anybody? Nobody. 
Okay, there's, thank you. There's Chad Pope, local St. Louisian. He knows that too. So there's this thing, no longer there. It's been torn down. In the very back, kind of like Grandpa's Mansion in Silver Dollar City, on, but it was on steroids, okay? It was bigger, and, and it was this thing, the Haunted Mansion. It was in the back around some of the smaller rides that they had. And in this, typically, and, and I knew this going in, uh, to it. Typically, the Haunted Mansion was just this labyrinth of, of narrow, winding hallways. And, you know, it was like Grandpa's Mansion. Sometimes the, the, the floors were like this. And, you know, there was two-way mirrors and there's strobe lights at times and things like that. But the scare factor was pretty minimal. Matter of fact, really the only thing they had as far as the haunted side was these, these ceramic, these life-size ceramic casts of, like, classic movie monsters behind glass. Encased in glass to keep you know kids like me picking at them and stuff like that. And so yeah, there was the Frankenstein, there was the mummy, you know, with his hands extended like this, the the werewolf, the the, the Dracula. There were those kinds of things. Pretty for even a five-year-old, pretty tame, you know, pretty easy. So and, and I suspect, I well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So when when my brothers, my three older brothers, were adamant that we go through the haunted mansion together. I had all those thoughts in my mind and knew that it was a pretty safe place. And so I was, uh, I was game. For, so we as a family were in the Haunted Mansion line. And it wasn't until we walked into the door that I realized this is not like the typical Haunted Mansion because it was the weekend before Halloween. I suspect, I've never confronted my brothers about this. I think they knew that. And they were setting me up for tragedy and horror to come. So so we're going through, well, what it was was that they turned it into an actual haunted house. So there's people hiding in shadows and they're jumping out at you. There's chainsaws going off in the, you know, you hear them. And I suspect in the 70s, there probably was some guy with a chainsaw feet away from me, probably with the blade still on, running it in, indoors, you know. There were people grabbing at you and pulling. And, and I had just enough, just enough. I could not take any more. And towards the end, there's this long hallway, narrow hallway, straight shot to this five-year-old. It felt like it, it looked like it was 100 yards long. And on both sides of this hallway were lined with men and women dressed as ghouls and torn clothes and bloody clothes and monster masks on. And they're all reaching out, grabbing for you, trying to grab you. And, and I mean, in my mind, now this hadn't happened yet. But, but now, like a year later, came this great video called Thriller. And that's what it was. And my, I was like, I just felt like all these, these monsters were coming in on me. And I was just knew that if I walked through that hallway, you know, they were going to just grab me and take me away forever. You know, I was in the moment and I knew that I was in a dangerous situation and I was terrified. And let me tell you, this little five-year-old boy, as my three brothers are trying to drag me through that hall, and they are having a lot of entertainment at my reaction at this point, I became like an 800-pound anchor, and I wasn't going anywhere. Wasn't going anywhere, okay? Now, there's a problem, because this is at the end of the experience. We are, we, we're, 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 stopping the flow of traffic and there's just i don't know hundreds of people behind us to turn around in these narrow hallways and work my way through the end with my dad or with someone else not gonna happen not gonna happen 
There was no choice but to get through this. And we didn't live like the grumpy old man. We didn't live in an age where people cared about other people's feelings in the 70s. It wasn't a case of, okay, turn the lights on. We got a scared child. Oh, no, no. We were, everything was going on as normal. If anything, my reaction just encouraged these monsters to even be more monstrous, right? Well, I've told stories about my dad. And, you know, you guys... Uh, I've never claimed my dad was Ward Cleaver, never made, you know, never made him sound, and he was not the guy that just knew the right thing to say at every time. He wasn't that kind of guy, but he had the right thing to say in that moment, and he did the right thing in that moment. Better, He responded better than, than Ward Cleaver could have done in that moment. When he saw how traumatized I was and how I wasn't going anywhere, he picked this five-year-old up, and he just said, Tony, I'm going to walk you through this. We're walking through this. Just look at me. Look at me. Do not look at anything else. Just keep your eyes on me. And so I put my arms around him. I looked not at him, but I looked at his neck, right? I just was looking at my, his neck. And let me tell you, it wasn't the case. As we started that long walk, it wasn't like all of a sudden I was hearing uh, harps and, you know, it was all of a sudden like a, a touched by an angel kind of moment, right? Oh, no. Those monsters just all they did, they were, they were really terrible teenagers because when they saw this, teen, this little boy that was traumatized, they just started grabbing at me and clawing at me. And I'm feeling on the back on my back, people's hands pawing at me and patting on me. I feel my, my shirt being pulled. I'm hearing, you know, these growls and these sinister noises and stuff all around me. And the whole time, my dad just keeps on walking. And he just says, he just, he just keeps on saying to me, Tony, just keep your eyes on me. And I knew the whole time I could feel, I'm just like, what sinister, evil demon from hell is trying to claw my soul into the abyss, right? I just knew that was happening all around me, but I didn't look. I didn't look. I followed the directions of my dad perfectly in that moment. And I looked only at him. And we, of course, Got through, got through the haunted mansion. If I, as a five-year-old, understood how to look at my dad in the midst of the, my environment, not ignoring my environment, not sticking my head in the sand and pretending it doesn't exist and only thinking on good vibes, if I had the ability to know how to do that as a five-year-old, I promise you, every one of us has that ability to know what it means to focus on our dad in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our life circumstances. this I really hesitated going here, folks, but this points to a New Testament truth that is found where? It's found, oddly enough, in the passage I preached from two weeks ago. I hesitated going here because I was afraid that, you know, I didn't want you thinking I, I just phoned it in this week and I didn't come prepared and so I'm just preaching one of those sermons that I had written that I didn't get a chance to preach, you know, a couple weeks ago. The reality was, the truth is, that sermon that I held, I, I used on, on Thursday during our timeout time. So, uh, the rea so the fact of the matter is, what Paul is talking about in Philippians really is a New Testament teaching from what Habakkuk had in, in his writings. And it's found in, in Philippians chapter 4, in which Paul writes in a jail cell, as we've reported to you before, as he is getting ready to be executed, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Isn't that interesting? You know, about 
650 years separating Habakkuk and Paul, and they're both saying the same thing, one from the New Testament perspective, one from the Old Testament perspective, saying no matter where you're at in life, no matter what circumstances you're in, it is going to be better for you to rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Paul tells us, Paul speaks to us here. Now, the passage, we're not going to talk about how do you rejoice in the midst of circumstances because we visited that subject. We're not going to talk about how do you, do you let anxiety rule your life or do you give those anxious thoughts up to God in daily prayer with thanksgiving. We've talked about that. The subject to bear today is one that is profound. It's one that we ignored uh, two weeks ago. It is a little sentence there of four words that... that is the reason why we can rejoice. It's the reason why we can pray in the midst of our anxiety and cast our cares upon God. And it is simply the fact that the Lord is near. Some translations I, I like better. They, they say, they translate it and they say, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That's an interesting phrase. I looked up the, the phrase at hand to see if there's some synonyms, if there's some words that can help us understand this better, here's what I found. Uh, at hand can mean nearby. The Lord is nearby to you right now. Uh, another version is readily accessible. The Lord is readily accessible to you in your circumstances, in your life, in this moment, because of what Christ did on a cross. Because you came to Him and God is your Heavenly Father. The moment, the very moment that you said yes to King Jesus in your life. The very moment that you confessed your sins and you submitted your life to God. And you asked Him to take leadership of your life. That very moment, God is at hand. He is nearby. He is readily accessible. A third one was the phrase about to happen. At hand can mean about to happen. You feel like God is silent in this age and God is silent in this moment, but we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what's going to happen in 30 minutes from now. And it might be in that moment that God is about to happen. So how do you, how do you live with this reality? Because I understand. We just have a few minutes left. I want to go faster. I understand that I'm doing a poor job and having a poor expectation as your pastor if I just say, so folks, quit complaining, start having a positive outlook in life, and uh, allow the joy of the Lord to come through. Let's pray a prayer, and now we're done. We can move on to other things. Because I understand there's been a lot of science uh, a lot of things written and understood the last five years about the neural pathways and transmitters and, and how our brains operate and how we think and how we process and see reality around us. And I, I've come to understand that the brain is much like, like regular topography or geography. What I'm saying is this, like, like you, you go to the market 
and you choose to go a certain pathway to the market, every time you decide that's the best pathway to go, so what happens? A path is worn, and you create a space that makes it easier for you to go to the market. And we could look at culture. You know, those kinds of things were happening two, 300 years ago, and then what happens? Well, that path becomes a, a wide path, which turns into a gravel path, which turns into a gravel road, which turns into a two-lane asphalt road, which can down the road turn into a super highway, right? That's the same way with how our brains are wired. We're used to going a certain direction when, when we respond and we think things and we create these neural pathways in our brain. And then next thing you know, you start going down. You know, when you find yourself when some stimulus hits you and you're like, next thing you know, I start complaining and griping and I didn't even realize what I was doing. And I don't know how I got there. What's well, because you have this neural pathway that you just start going down this, this road of thought and you don't even realize you're going down it. And what do you have to do? You have to create new pathways. You know, my, my family, we, last weekend after church, Dana and I, Dax, we got on in the car and we drove to Festus, Missouri to spend time with my brother and sister-in-law for years because I grew up in Arnold. Um, when my brother moved a few years ago to Festus, I would continue to drive the way I would always drive, but out of habit because I wasn't for certain his neighborhood, specific neighborhood, and there was a, through some back roads, I would always plug in his address into our into our Siri or into our map quest thing or mapping and so we always found it was very interesting when we get to around St. Clair it would have us get off the highway and I'd just be like I'm not going that way because that's not the way to go that's I mean you're going off the highway in a in an area where you're let's, let's face it you know I tell Dana because she's like oh don't don't should we go here I'm like no because if we go down here, next thing you know, I'm going to stop at a gas station somewhere, and I'm going to find a bunch of hillbilly inbred yokels that are going to make me a blue plate special the next day. No, thank you. Not going to do that. You know, I'm going to stay on the superhighway, and I'm going to go down to Fenton and then cut across Fenton into Jefferson County because that's my home. That's what I know, and it's safe there. Those inbred yokels there are my inbred yokels, okay? They're, they're my people, so I know it's safe. So every time we drive past this thing, what would it do? It would add 30 minutes of our time. It would increase our drive time by 30 minutes. And Dana would point that out to me very graciously and be like, oh, now we got 30 more minutes driving. I'm like, yes, and we, we, we still save time because, again, we're not going to be blue plate specials down the road, so we're still going to be alive afterwards. Thank you. You can thank me later, Dana, for protecting you. Well, finally, two times ago, Dana's like, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just go ahead and go this way just to see? And if it's a bad way, then okay, we maybe lose a half an hour or something, or maybe it's just hairy road that we don't like. We won't do it ever again, but we'll know. You know what I discovered? We, we discovered a delightful, a delightful little side way to get to Festus that we saw some beautiful homes. Also saw some trailer parks, too, and some trailer homes. But that's another story. We saw some beautiful homes, and we saw some beautiful hills and vistas. We saw some spots in the Ozark, the tip of the Ozarks, you know, that we'd never seen before. And we did save 30 minutes of time, got there quicker than normal, found a great destination that was a different pathway than I was used to getting to my brother. And it was a great way. Now, let me confess, the whole time, that first time, I was very uncomfortable. Right? 
Because I'm like, am I going the right way? Is this the right? I don't want to get lost here. Is is there going to be a, a hairpin curve coming around that I need to pay attention to? You know, I was constantly on the alert and constantly paying attention. I was uncomfortable. Friends, that is like when we decide to change how we think. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to feel like this is not right. This is not normal. No, because it's not the way you have done it in the past. But we must, you must If you're going to experience the joy of the Lord, if you're going to be a person where you say, you know what, I don't want to be ruled and be defined as being a person that's a complainer and having a complaining spirit, it's going to require that you rewrite some of those neural pathways. Real quickly, how do you do it? How do you have that? It's some practical exercises of of knowing that God is near you, of making sure that God is what you're viewing and what you're seeing and not the circumstances around you. What I did to help me in this time was back in March when when the stuff started coming out, I just had a sense that like, you know what, we're going to be in for some dark days ahead of us. And so I just grabbed this this journal that Dana had gotten from a from a extended or a, a continuing ed class she had done and no we neither one of us was using it but I just created this I, I was like you know what I'm gonna just keep this journal around and when I hear messages of hope when I hear information that needs to be disseminated that, that I need to just keep on reviewing in my life I'm gonna record it in here if you've watched on Thursdays I typically do a timeout time in the in the early afternoon or the late morning and oftentimes you'd see this near me or you'd see this in front of me and I'd be using this it's because I recorded something for myself for myself to help my soul and I just was like you know this is something that we need to share as a church I need to share it as your friend as your pastor and so there's a lot of things in here that I've just recorded over the last few months it might be that what you need to do is get a little black book just like I have and for you you create a Thanksgiving journal and every time something happens in your day where you're like man I need to thank God for that I need to thank God. It could be something as mild as you're driving by and you see a rainbow, and that brings a little joy in your life. You just write that down. Lord, thank you for the rainbow on this day. And what you do is is then periodically, when you find yourself starting to go down that negative pathway, open that thing up and start reviewing the things that God has given to you that you're thankful for over the last few days, over the last few weeks. And you'll find that that helps turn you to begin looking at things through eyes of thanksgiving rather than through eyes of complaining and complaint. Another option, another tool that I've created is I've just, the past week or two, just came up with some sayings, some phrases that I would dwell on in the morning that would help me frame my day and help me frame who I am as a, as a child of Christ. And as a child of God, as a brother of Christ, as, 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 as a, a person who is an heir in Jesus, uh, I, I came up with some of these phrases. And what I would do is I would just think on those and I would even find scripture to help me contemplate those things. And I would allow that to frame my day. I invite you, if you don't have a quiet time and you're not in a regular Bible study, use this for a season. What I did, if you have, uh, if you have our Northbridge app, then earlier today, I sent a push notification that allows you just to click on to this list that we've created that's attached to our website. If you're on Facebook, if you don't have our app, I'd invite you to get our app because it's free and it's a great tool to communicate with. If you don't, then go to Facebook and we put that out today as well, this list that's found on our website. And, and what you might do is just, there's, there's, I don't know, 30 or 40 phrases. I'm not asking you to go through each of those each day. That's kind of crazy. But take one or two of them and just use those as a way to help frame your day and frame your mind. 
And, and, and again, don't just take my phrase, because my phrase is just a phrase. But let that help you dig into Scripture. Like, and I'll show you the example. So one of the phrases I had that, that I've used, that, I've, that I'm using for myself is to remind myself that my life belongs to God. I seek Him daily. He directs my steps. I know His voice. He leads me. Okay? Nice phrase, but that's not Scripture. So what I've done is I will then go and I'll go to Siri and ask for Bible verses about God leading me. So watch. Watch this. Siri, find me Bible verses about God leading me. Here's what I found. Okay. She found uh, right here on website 71 Bible verses about God, God leading or about letting God lead. 59 Bible verses about guidance, receiving God's guidance. 25 uh, Bible verses about guidance, enlightening scripture quotes. Scriptures on guidance and leading. 25 Bible verses about guidance. So right here, I can click on one of those. And I can just be now filled. You don't have an excuse. You don't, you don't have the ability to say, well, I do a Bible study. But you know what? My job doesn't allow me to go to the library where I have 25, 15-pound volumes of Scripture and commentaries around to do the study. No, you just need your phone. And I click on one of those. And what do I do? Now I find 50 verses where I can just allow those to pour into my heart. And just take those in and think and contemplate and allow those verses to direct me in my prayer time. What am I saying? I'm saying this. I'm saying we will have to, in order for us to be like Habakkuk, where we focus and we see God more than we see our daily problems. Where we see God greater than we see the world around us. It's going to take some discipline. It's not going to just come naturally to you. It's going to be uncomfortable. Even for Christ followers, it's not going to come naturally. And we have to take some ownership of allowing God to change our thinking and change how we process and change how we see the world around us. Because, you know, that's the gospel. The fact that Jesus changed us from the inside out. And so when he changed us, when he saved us, when we repented of our sin, it's not like, poof, everything is perfect. But then he begins the daily step-by-step -step process of making us into an image of his son. And part of that step-by-step -step process is helping us to take ownership of how we think about things, how we see the world around us. And we say, God, I have enough faith in you that even though you have not personally uh, made an axe head made out of iron, and float on the water in front of me. I trust in that story. I trust in the stories of how you delivered your people in the word. And so now I am going to actively begin to allow your Holy Spirit to help me rewire how I think and what I do and what I say because I love you that much because you paid for my sin. That's the gospel story right there of, of allowing God's leadership to come in my life. So because of that, we can be positive people. We don't have to be ruled by complaining. We can have a glad heart that shows from our face. And we don't have to just allow this world to crush our lives and to crush our spirits and just be like, well, everything is dismal, so I have to be dismal. We don't have to let the big three, fear and ungodly anger and hopelessness, rule our days and make the decisions in our lives for us where we disconnect from people and we disconnect from one another another and we look at each other with fear and malice towards one another we don't have to go down that road friends and let me tell you for those of us who do my heart breaks for you it breaks because you're missing out on so much and my hope as your pastor is that the holy spirit would speak into your life in such a way that you reach out 
for what is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. And Lord, it is our heart. It is our hope, God, that we would be people that would stay positive. Now, God, you know, you know my, my spirit here. You know my demeanor. I'm not talking, God, I'm not asking that you give us the ability to be ostriches and stick our heads in the sand and ignore reality. I'm not, I know that doesn't help anything. But God, I also understand that people who are sour, people that are negative, people who are complaining, they are crushing their spirits. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would work in us, that we would be different as a result. And that we would be people who stop the complaining. And instead, we speak with joy and hope and kindness towards one another and towards the people that you surround us with this week. These things we pray in your son's powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.